0: Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith.
1: Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Feith. I'm John Simon. And we're here again with Tom Stewart. Hi, Tom. How are we doing? We are continuing on our earlier conversation. You've developed a series of guides. You call them trial guides. I'm looking at one of the trial guides right now in front of me, and the title is Trial Objections Overview. But let's just touch on your other three trial guides. Maybe we can start with effective opening statements. We've had a podcast session or two on opening statements. Let's hear from you. What's important about opening statement?
2: I mean, for my money, everybody has what they think is the most important part of the trial. Setting aside what and jury selection, which is his own separate deal, for my money, opening statement is definitely what I think is the most impactful for a couple of reasons. First of all, in opening statement, you're dealing with a blank slate. The jury knows next to nothing about what this case is. And so, for example, if you're the plaintiff, you're starting up with a blank slate and you're going to start painting the picture of what this case is. And so in the trial guide series of opening statements, in the center of the pyramid is the concept of the frame. And what I talk to my apprentice lawyers about is the frame is nothing more than what is this case about? I don't think jurors make up their mind in opening statement, but I do think they start pulling for one side or another. They start leaning, they start empathizing. And so, you know, to me, the most important part of the opening statement is framing what this case is about from your client's perspective. The other thing that I think lawyers don't utilize near enough in opening statement are exhibits. And of course, exhibits can be tricky. They're not in evidence yet. Typically, you can use them with permission of your opponent or with leave of court. But as the trial guide on opening statements mentions, you know, when we were in kindergarten, it wasn't just tell us about your summer vacation, it was show and tell. And show and tell is a very powerful tool that we use to imprint information on people's psyche and on their brain. And so, I'm always looking for opportunities in opening statement, not only to talk about my case, but to show aspects of my case to the jury. Whether it's demonstrative evidence, whether it's real evidence in the trial, I think your default position in opening should be always to show the jury what you've got.
1: It's so common when you're sitting for a lecture or whatever it is, a courtroom presentation, you're being lulled into Word, 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 word. It's like it takes work to pay attention. But something about when someone reaches for something, your mind, it's almost like we're wired to think, what is that thing? It wakes you up to have someone reach for a thing.
2: No question. It engages you on a completely different level of thinking. And on the back of this trial guide series on opening statement, we have some approaches to storytelling. I think one of the most important things to consider is the approach that I call cold and bold. You know, when you turn on Saturday Night Live at 1035 on Saturday night, what you get when you turn that show on is the skit. You don't get a person coming out and saying, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm going to outline for you everything you're going to see in the show. What you get is what you tuned in to watch. You get the skit. The skit could be bad. It could be funny. Who knows? But that cold and bold opening, I think, is one of the most important things, whether it's the courtroom or anywhere else. What is the first 90 seconds of what you're going to say? What is that going to sound like? Are you going to squander that moment? Are you going to squander that moment in the courtroom by standing up and saying, You know, these hackneyed sayings that lawyers say, well, opening statements, not evidence, opening statements, a jigsaw puzzle. I'm here to outline for you the jigsaw or even worse, when you start pontificating about the founding fathers and the importance of trials or some crap that no one cares about. Instead, in that opening statement, the first words out of your mouth should matter. They should matter intensely to the case. And lawyers all the time at Nita and other places will tell me, well, you know, I don't think the jury's ready to hear something that matters at that moment. And I said, you know, with all due respect, that's a cop-out. You're not ready. They're ready. They've been through jury selection. They're strapped into the boat. They're ready for the rapids. You may not be ready. You may not psychologically be ready to say something that counts. Well, go get yourself ready because they're ready to hear it. And so this cold and bold approach to what we're saying, grab that golden opportunity to initiate your story with something that's going to captivate the jury.
1: Tell us what the defendant attorney should be thinking about, because if the plaintiff does it right, cold and bold, you just got behind.
2: Going second has its own unique set of challenges and opportunities. And so the first question the defense lawyer should ask herself is was my opponent's opening statement effective? And how do you answer that question? Well, were you paying attention to the opening statement? Were you watching the jury's reaction? Was the jury tuned out? Was the opening statement a snooze fest? Did they not accomplish much, if anything, in the opening statement? Was it tedious? If so, and I'm going second, I'm ignoring it, frankly, because my opponent was not effective you'd be surprised what you can pick up on if you're present to the moment of your opponent's opening statement. I remember one time watching my partner, Jim Holleran, give an opening statement. My God, people were laughing. They were nodding. They were elbowing each other. I mean, he had them eating out of the palm of his hands. Well, if you're going second to that opening statement, you've got some stuff you need to undo in a hurry. And so the first question to ask yourself is, was that an effective opening statement? If it was, then you've got a real balance if you're going second. You don't want your opening statement to completely be consumed by what, you know, John Simon just did, because then you're stuck in the trap of just responding to him. So you get in, you clarify a point or two that you think were particularly dangerous for you. And then you reestablish your theme, your theory, your outlook on the case. But you don't want to be completely absorbed into the plaintiff's approach to the trial because now all you're doing is responding to the frame that they've set. And so it's a real kind of balancing act when you go second as to how you should approach that.
1: So what do you do when a plaintiff, say John, comes at you in one of his catastrophic injury cases where the, you know, he's pointing out the strong liability and the voice in your head is, I'm screwed. He might have just won his case. What do you tell your students about how to get your composure back when you've just been you know kicked in the stomach?
2: Well, here's the thing you have to keep in mind. Jurors, for the most part, are skeptical of lawyers. Even lawyers that are super persuasive Jurors are always kind of looking for, well, wait a minute. If the case was that straightforward, would we really be here? And so when you go second, they're kind of hungry for, what do you got to say about that? And I've seen defense lawyers even say that. If this case were as Mr. Simon just painted it, we would have no need for a trial. And you know that. You know there must be something more to the story. Well, let me tell you what. And so you have an opening there because jurors are, again, they're really skeptical like, wait a minute, that can't be all the story. And so when you stand up and present
3: the rest of the story,
2: well, there you go. Now the playing field has been
3: leveled out. So I, I had a case, you remember George Costa? Oh sure, So he I was had, great. Yeah, George was great and I had a case with him. I just remember it was one of the last cases that he tried before he quit practicing. And so it was an uninsured motorist case in the city And we had good liability. It was one of those cases. The injuries were serious. And I gave the opening statement and I thought to myself, there's not much left for Mr. Costa to say. And he got up in front of the jury, slowly walked over to the jury box, took a deep breath and looked at him and said, ladies and gentlemen, so we're here in the city of St. Louis. We've got a terribly injured plaintiff and I'm representing State Farm Insurance Company. Is the case over before we even start? And that's how he started it. And it was very, very effective. And it kind of took the wind out of my sails on opening. And it was like, is it over with? Is it done? And again, they were listening to him. He got their attention and he kind of brought them back down to where I didn't want them to be, you know, after. (laughs) After you
2: got them all ginned up. Yeah, I got them all ginned (laughs) up.
3: And so... But we got a good result in the case, but it could have been a lot worse for George. He did a great job tamping it down.
2: Yeah. And some of the most effective defense lawyers in town, there's a lawyer here in town, Jack Enright, who's got that same demeanor. You know, you get up and you get the jury coming to the light of the truth and all the rest. And then, you know, Enright gets up and he's like, well, there's a little more to it. And he just kind of starts letting the air out of the balloon, you know, he's very effective that way.
1: Let's look at the next guy, effective cross-examination. What are some of the important non-obvious?
2: Well, yeah. So on the trial guide for effective cross, on what I consider to be the front page of it, I have outlined the steps to impeachment with an inconsistent statement. Now, we all know any witness can be impeached on direct or cross, we know that. But typically witnesses are impeached on cross. So I included the sequencing of how to impeach with an inconsistent statement. And I've done it for a couple of reasons on the cross-examination trial guide. Number one, judges have told me, if they told me once, they've told me 50 times, lawyers no longer can remember how to impeach with an inconsistent statement. Impeachment with an inconsistent statement is a very powerful tool. You don't use it all the time, but it's a very powerful tool to have. Number two... Lawyers have forgotten the step-by-step approach. And so what the trial guide on CROSS does is it walks you through, easy to read, very quickly, what are the steps? Commit, validate, confront, and then, of course, the secret step, which is shut up and move on to something else. And so what's the commit part? We ask the witness on CROSS. Did I just hear you tell the jury that the light was red when the SUV went through the intersection? We must isolate the offending testimony to go on with the sequence. The witness says, yes, the light was red. Step two, we validate the out-of-court statement. If we're using a deposition, we all know what that sounds like. You recall giving a deposition. You were under oath. You were at my office. There was a court reporter there. You swore to tell the truth. We validate what that statement was for the jury's benefit. Step three, we confront the witness. I'm handing you page 27 of your deposition. Look at line 12. Read along with me as I read your testimony. Question, what color was the light when the SUV went through the intersection? Answer, the light was green. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the light was green. Did I read your testimony correctly? Yes, you did. So now I've committed, validated, confronted the witness with the inconsistent statement. The secret fourth step, and the one that I have violated more than once, is to shut up and move on. At that moment, every fiber in your trial lawyer being, once that witness has been confronted with the inconsistent statement, every fiber in your barrister being is going to compel you to say to the witness, well, Mr. Witness, which is it? Were you lying in the courtroom or were you lying in your deposition? It's hard to resist that moment. But I'm here to tell you, as someone who's tried it more than once, it never works. The witness says something like, gosh, I'm sorry. I see that I've upset you and I didn't mean to confuse you. And I'm just trying to do my best here. The depo was
3: eight hours long. Yeah, I was, trying trying I I was that.
2: tired. And I know I said it was a green light in the depot. I don't know what I was thinking, Mr. Stewart, but it really was a red light. I hope it doesn't hurt your case. but I mean, it just destroys everything that you've just accomplished with this impeachment. So what you should do in that final moment is move on to some other topic on cross-examination, argue to the jury the effect of this inconsistent statement that you've effectively impeached the witness on, argue it in closing argument. That's how it should be done.
1: I noticed on the confront stage, you use the question, did I read that correctly? And I use that too. And the reason I don't say you said that, right, is because it's an escape clause. They'll say, I don't remember. You know, I don't think I said that. But when your question is, did I read that right? They usually don't have the wherewithal to go. That's what it says, but that's not what I said.
2: And actually, I should have written that even more precisely. I would lead the witness as opposed to, did I read that correctly? I would tell them. I read that correctly, didn't I? But this is a gold standard courtroom thing that we all knew by the time of our third year in practice when we were trying cases left and right. It's something that has kind of started to escape our thinking because we haven't had to impeach with an inconsistent statement because we haven't been in the courtroom in a while. And so this trial guide is designed simply as a gentle reminder. Here's how you do it
1: in case you have to. Let's go to your last exhibit on uh, direct exam. You have a five-step process for introducing real evidence exhibits. And I think you just set this up again with the theme, Lawyers Get Rusty at These Skills. Talk about how to get those exhibits in.
2: Let me start with this brief story. A friend of mine is a judge. I won't mention even where she sits, but she tried a case a month ago in front of a very experienced lawyer who had a trucking case who couldn't get the case settled. They start the trial, they do void air, fine, they do opening statements, somewhat less than fine, but they get through it. And after opening statements, the plaintiff's lawyer fires up his little projector on a screen and he starts showing exhibits to the jury. Here's a photograph of the accident scene, here, da, 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 da. here's a copy of the police report with the diagram. The defendant's not objecting, there's no witness on the stand, it's just a presentation. And this is a lawyer who's about three years younger than me. I'm 62 years old. So this lawyer's been around. And so finally, the judge calls the lawyers up and says, What are we doing? And they're kind of looking at her like, What do you mean? She's like, Well, have you stipulated to all this proof? Is this all agreed to? And they're like, Well, no, we don't have any stipulations. Well, you're supposed to call witnesses and mark exhibits. They literally thought they were just going to show stuff. I can't believe that is, story. that is crazy. The judge told me, I'm adjudicating this trial while teaching trial advocacy to two experienced lawyers. Ouch. I'm doing it simultaneously to wow. get them through this experience. So what this trial guide is, it's the direct examination trial guide. What do we do on direct examination? Well, we should, at least partly, be admitting real evidence into the case. And there's a sequencing. We mark the exhibit, the courtesies. We show our opponent the exhibit. We ask to approach. We lay foundation. We move the admission. And then the most important step that it's stunning to me how many lawyers forget the fifth step, which is publishing the exhibit to the jury. That is to say, so many lawyers move the exhibit into evidence and they feel like that was the end goal. Well, I got it into evidence. But they don't bother to show it. They don't bother to display it or to use it with the witness. It's quite astonishing. I'm like, well, why did you go through the exercise if you're not going to show the exhibit? And so maybe the trial guide should have started with the question of how are you going to publish the exhibit before we go any further? But so many lawyers have overlooked what am I going to do with this evidence once it's in? How am I going to utilize it? And so this is simply a trial guide to, again, remind them of that fact. On this trial guide, I do wanna point something out because this is also something that I think lawyers have forgotten on direct examination. On the flip side of the trial guide, it points out that on direct examination, we are told that we are not to lead the witness. No leading questions on direct. Okay, fine. Well, just because I can't lead my witness on direct doesn't mean that I don't direct my witness on direct. I mean, the word direct is in the phrase direct examination. So lawyers tend to default to, when you arrived at the accident scene, tell us what you did. These narrative questions. Well, most of what the witness did is not relevant to the case or is inadmissible to begin with. Instead, what we train the apprentice lawyers at SLU is, although you can't lead, you must direct. And by that, I mean, when you arrived at the accident scene, did you walk up to the car? Yes, I did. As you approached the car, did you smell an odor coming from the car? I did. What was that odor? It was the odor of alcohol. As you got closer to the car, did you observe anything laying on the ground? All of those kinds of questions are not leading in any way whatsoever, but they're directing the witness to speak on certain topics. If you do that on direct, a couple of things will happen. One, your direct examination will be shorter, which is good. And two, the jury will follow the bouncing ball a little more closely because you're asking the witness, here's what I want you to talk about. I'm directing you to this topic. Now talk about this topic as opposed to, well, what happened next? And kind of sitting back with a glass That's of a water. a great way tonight. to approach it. hundred percent. And I think lawyers think, well, I can't lead So the only way to ask the question is what happened next? No, you've got to direct on direct examination. It's an underutilized tool.
1: Tom, this has been great. Really sure. appreciate you. Thanks, guys. Uh, yeah, joining thanks for us. coming on. Appreciate it. Again, thanks for the good conversation about the nuts and bolts. That, you know, I've been doing class actions for 12 to 15 years. And as you probably know, there's almost no trials in that kind of litigation. So this has been good for me and I hope good for everyone who's listening to get another uh, refresher course in all of this. Great so, stuff, Tom.
2: Sure, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks.
1: This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Vieth. I'm John Simon. See you next time.
0: The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. At The Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929 And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law and subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.